0: I'm Charles Wyckoff, retina specialist from Houston, Texas. Absolute privilege to be here with two good friends and colleagues, Carmen Fido and Phil Rosenfeld, both giants in the field that need no introduction. Phil, let's jump right in. So you're a master of macular degeneration, both advanced forms, right? Dry and wet. And you've been focused now for probably a decade, maybe longer on sort of the geographic atrophy angle. When few people clinically were talking about it, um, you had some landmark papers. You showed that atrophy was super important as a cause of vision loss, the marina and anchor data sets. And then more recently, your imaging has really sort of highlighted a choroidal role to geographic atrophy. Where are we in our understanding of geographic atrophy and, and where are we headed?
1: Thank you for the question, Charlie. Carmen, it's great to see you. Yeah, you know, geographic atrophy has... Currently, the bane of our existence, particularly now that we can treat wet AMD with anti VEGF therapy. And now we look in the eyes of these patients and they continue to lose vision. And those patients with dry macular degeneration are happy and they have good vision. And you know what the future holds. They're going to gradually lose their vision. And, you know, I originally got into age related macular degeneration because I was trained as a molecular biologist, geneticist. And it was actually Joanna Seddon that got me fascinated as a resident because she was doing at a time where everyone was thinking about nutritional factors and and sun exposure. She was doing an identical twin study. And in this study, she showed the the concurrence was amazing. Identical twins, if one has age-related macular degeneration, the other has it. So this got me interested in AMD from a genetic standpoint. And... um, you know, Carmen, you probably remember Ephraim Friedman from the Mass Pioneer yes. it was right around that time. And he believed in scleral rigidity. That's where the thinking was in the mid to late 90s, scleral rigidity as being responsible for age-related macular de- degeneration. And along comes genetics. And suddenly people began to appreciate that genetics played an important, important role. And then 2005 with the Human Genome Project, the first genome-wide association study, and lo and behold, AMD, complement factor H, ARMS2, HDRI1, became the most tightly associated loci for AMD, and I think to this day, it's still the most highly associated loci after all these genome-wide association studies. So geographic atrophy is fascinating because although AMD is tightly linked to the complement locus, there's almost no data to suggest that complement factor H alleles are involved in the growth rate, the formation of geographic atrophy. But yet that's where we're focusing our research because primarily that's where the FDA has given us the, the ability to study the growth of geographic atrophy as a clinical trial endpoint in phase three clinical trials for registration. So we have been focusing in treating AMD on geographic atrophy. And I got so excited about geographic atrophy and complement that I started the study called the complete study with Alexion using eculizumab systemically. And there's a lot of possibilities why that study didn't work. But as my biostatistician, Bill Foyer said, we got an answer. It didn't work. Okay. It definitely didn't work. And then along came Novartis with a C5 a- antibody, similar to the one we delivered systemically. It didn't work when delivered intravitrially. Then along comes Genentech with factor D in- inhibition, delivery. it didn't work. So we had three failures, one after the other. And there was a lot of skepticism out there about whether complement inhibition had any chance of working in age-related macular degeneration geographic atrophy. And we can come up with reasons why all these previous studies failed. But my feeling was, you know, the genetics points to complement. If we can't block complement in its entirety and demonstrate that, that, that geographic atrophy can't be slowed, then we can give up on comp, complement, okay? It's hopeless. And then I started working with pellis and C3 inhibition and lo and behold, you block all of complement and suddenly you can slow the rate of geographic atrophy. Very exciting, very, very exciting. And then Ivera comes out with Zymura, slows down the growth rate of geographic atrophy. And now if you look out in the field of clinical trials, we've got like six different companies developing complement inhibitory drugs that could potentially slow down the growth of geographic atrophy. It's really astounding.
0: Mm-hmm. And your work on imaging, focus on the choroid for me for a second. I think the choroid may be the most underappreciated part of the imaging that we do. How important is the capillaris in this? Is that the genesis of GA?
1: Well, Charlie, that's a great question. We don't really know what the genesis of GA is but we know what corresponds to the growth of GA. And what we've learned using swept source OCT angiography is that the loss of coriocapillaris throughout the entire macula correlates with the growth rate of GA, but we're still trying to figure out what determines the directionality of GA growth. We know the overall growth rate, mm. but what, what we want to be able to do is say, GA is going to grow from here to here and that, oh, that drusen is going to turn into atrophy. We're not at that point yet, and we're still peeling the onion back, figuring out the different layers, the anatomic layers that are important. But one of the important things that you and I have learned, Charlie, is that when we look at, we're going to get back to neovascularization. When we look at new blood vessel formation, we have these type 1 lesions growing under the RPE, but they don't leak, they don't leak. And we've been torturing our data for the last couple of years. We've been trying to figure out what are the triggers that make these non-exudative lesions start leaking. So we looked at the change in size. No, it's not the change in size. We look at the capillaris around the lesion. No, it's not the choreocapillaris. We look at the vascular complexity of the lesion. We skeletonized the vessels we look at the vascular air. No, it's not the change in the vas- vascular air. We look at the choroid, we look at the choroidal thickness, the choroidal vascularity. And no, it's not that. Ah, but we have an observation. The observation is that when you treat eyes with C3 inhibition that have this double layer sign, oh, you get exudation, you get dose dependent exudation. So maybe. Part of the trigger for this whole process is immunologic. And now we're starting to think that it has to do with macrophage switching in the back of the eye. So maybe complement works by taking prophagocytic macrophages, which are chewing away at the edges of GA and turning them into proangiogenic macrophages transiently. That's part of the mechanism. So here we spent all this time and effort trying to study these lesions to figure out the triggers. Because when you see these lesions in clinic, You want to be able to follow them closely and determine when they're going to develop exudation. But there may be an immunologic trigger that we just can't detect in clinic, and it's something that may be a side product of complement inhibition.
0: Fascinating. So is a pellet going to pan out in phase three? What do you think?
1: Uh, Oh, look, we wrote this... Commentary. Bill Ford and I wrote this commentary last year, why clinical trials fail, okay? And this was after the Lampalizumab failure. Yeah, I remember when that. The again. take-home message from the Lampalizumab failure, if you look at their phase two, in a traditional sense, it was a negative result, okay? Their p-value wasn't what you would typically accept as a clinically significant p-value. They stretched the de- definition. Then they looked at a subgroup analysis, okay? Right. And they found that complement factor I subgroup that worked well when given right. an inhibition with fact, factor D drug. So then they moved out from a phase two a phase three. And one of our central rules is, as famous biostatisticians say, perform retrospective subgroup analyses as hypothesis generating, but never believe the results. Because there aren't any clinical trials in ophthalmology that have been proven the positive moving from phase two to phase three based on retrospective subgroup analyses. right? So that, it never worked in the first place. And the other cardinal rule that we put out in this paper is if you have a successful phase two study, don't change anything.
0: That's another Mm -hmm. mistake
1: a lot of people make. They think they're smarter than the average bear and they're going to make it better and they're going to start tweaking the clinical trial design. But don't fool yourself. There's a lot of variables with unintended consequences that can occur. If you have a trial design and it works in phase two, move that clinical trial design to phase three. And I was determined that nothing would change going from the phase two to the phase three. So that it's a long-winded answer to your quest- question, but yes, the phase three will work because the phase two was solid, statistically significant, no subgroup analyses, and the clinical trial design was identical moving into phase three.
0: Our last year question for you. The phrase dead retina walking. I've always enjoyed that phrase that I, that I believe you coined. If you didn't, please tell me who did. I, I always credit you as that, as that phrase. Explain to us what that means in your perspective and why that's relevant to clinical trials in GA.
1: All right, so I'll take credit for dead retina walking, but that all comes from OCT. And one of the great contributions that Carmen made with his OCT and developing um, the Miami Macular Mapper in uh, in Miami um, is that we started using ONFOS OCT long before it became popular with OCT angiography. We, people couldn't understand the importance of ANFAS OCT imaging, and now they give themselves a dope slap. Of course, it's a really valuable way of imaging the back of the eye. And what we appreciated back in, wow, 2008, 2009, was that when the RPE starts to die, it develops what we now call hypertransmission defects. The light now can penetrate through the RP because it loses melanin, it's no longer re- reflected back. You get increased choroidal light penetration. We call them hypertransmission defects. And we started seeing that more and more in eyes with intermediate AMD, in eyes with exudative AMD being being treated. And it became apparent that the retina was dying. The the RPE was dying. And even though the person could see at that moment, it wasn't going to last. So we coined the term dead retina walking. Because once you start seeing that, and once it gets to a certain size, it's the point of no return. The vision can't be recovered down down the road. And now we're going to be using it as as a clinical trial endpoint and studying treatment for intermediate age-related macular degeneration. Super
0: insightful. Really appreciate those comments. So Phil, moving on to
1: imaging. Is OCT angiography ready for prime time yet? Carmen, in my practice it is because when you get OCT angiography you also get structural OCT imaging. And that's an important point that people don't understand. Just because you get OCT angiographic scans doesn't mean you have got to put in the time and effort to look at the angiographic images. The images that you get just from structural OCT is as good as any structural OCT system. So I routinely get OCT angiography on the majority of my patients in clinic. That doesn't mean I sit there and take the time to um, analyze the results. People ask me, what are the killer apps for OCT angiography? Compared to structural OCT. And I have to be honest, the structural OCT by itself gives you almost everything you need. In fact, I don't usually get fluorescein angiography or endocyanin green angiography because structural OCT gives you most of the information that you need. The killer apps for OCT angiography, particularly swept source OCT angiography, is the detection of these subclinical lesions, which are. Occur in anywhere from 13 to 15% of patients with dry AMD with Druzen. And I think it's very important to confirm the diagnosis so you can follow those patients closely. Now, we play this game in clinic where we see the double layer sign on structural OCT and we guess whether a subclinical lesion is actually there. And most of the time, we can determine if the subclinical lesion is, is there. So, detection of subclinical neovascularization in AMD. And as our resident, now chief resident, Jonathan Russell has done so superbly, is he's generated a series of papers published in Ophthalmology of Retina and AJO now showing that wide field swept source OCT is as good as wide field fluorescein angiography for proliferative diabetic retinopathy. So the two killer apps there's one in AMD for detection of subclinical neovascularization and in diabetes to look at the wide field capillary drop dropout and pick up those early stage neovascular buds, as well as the more established neovascularization. And he showed, and now with the latest instrument, we have a 15 by 15 scan, which is truly amazing. So he found that by scanning on the macula and on the optic nerve, you can get 99 plus percent of the neovascular lesions that you can detect using wide field fluorescein angiography. So do you need swept source OCT angiography? No, you can manage your patients beautifully. Are you gonna get reimbursed for OCT angiography? Not in the United States. I don't know why, but we've hit a roadblock whenever we've gone for reimbursement for that code outside the United States. Yes, and that's why the instruments are selling like hotcakes outside the United States. But If you want to treat your patients well and do follow-up scanning so you can get longitudinal information, your patients will be grateful. And I think once you get used to imaging, particularly the the diabetics, you get more information, more useful information. And I think it's time to start considering a whole new diabetic classification scheme based on wide-field OCT angiography. What about autofluorescence? I use it all the time in baseline di- diagnoses. For routine AMD, I don't use it. I think it's useful for um, di- diagnosing other macular degenerations, um, rare conditions. I routinely do it. But um, in routine clinical practice, it's not particularly useful for the common diseases.
0: Charlie, do you have yeah, a question? Please, yeah, I got one. For the patients, for the the physicians that don't have OCTA and they're looking for your double layer sign. And you said, particularly what you just said, you said with you and your fellows, you sort of have a game where you try to determine which double layer sign is gonna harbor a type one membrane and which will not. What are those little subtle cues that the rest of us can look for that aren't doing OCTA on all these patients with these sort of confluent areas of drusen that might be harboring type one lesions?
1: Well, I think Robin Geimer's term Um, that she published, and we went along with her because we were serving as the reading center for her OCTA images, is a Sire sign. And the Sire sign is a shallow, irregular retinal pigment epithelial elevation. And that's exactly what it is. You can call it a double layer sign. You can call it a flat, irregular retinal pigment epithelial detachment or elevation. And it's this low-lying pigment epithelial detachment. Occasionally, it can look like a little druze, But it's usually a little bit larger than a Uh druse usually 300 400 microns she put a thousand micron limit on it i think that's too large i think you can see them much smaller and Uh they have an irregular pattern and the other key is look for the internal reflectivity a druse usually not always but a drusen drusen usually have a more homogeneous internal reflectivity where the double liar sign as a more hypo-reflective internal structure that um, if you have Drusen on the same image, you can really distinguish between the two. It's a, there's a learning curve to it. And unfortunately, the best way to, to become an expert in the learning curve is to compare OCTA next to OCT structure, flow versus structure. And that's the other take home message. If you're gonna perform OCT angiography, you always wanna look at your flow image on FOSS next to your structure image. And you always wanna look at your corresponding B scan with the flow next to your B scan with the structure. You can't forget the structure. Flow and structure go together. You gotta look at both images to fully interpret what's going on. Well, Phil, thanks so much for this wide ranging discussion of imaging and how it all fits together in the future of macular degeneration. Thank you, Carmen, and thanks for starting this whole OCT craziness. And Charlie, it's always a pleasure working with you in clinical trials and on papers. Thank you for taking the time to talk to me. It's greatly appreciated.
0: I look forward to much more.